Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Strength and Strength. It's good to see, see you all again. And it's really good to have my friend Adam Boyd on here from Papua New Guinea. Um, he, we all look kind of bleary-eyed because it's 6 a.m., and he looks, ti- he looks tired because it's uh, 9 p.m. <laughs> there in, um, in Papua New Guinea. And he was just telling us a little bit earlier that he was out down by the river chopping down uh, weeds by the river so he can, he can have a baptism tomorrow for his daughter. So that's, um, that's really, really exciting, Adam. Um, so Adam and I met uh, in, in the summer of 2019. My family was spending a month in Pittsburgh. And Adam, you, your, your, your parents live in Pittsburgh, right, Adam? Your parents are That's there right. in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, they were out to visit them. <clears throat> and we met up at a, at a Starbucks. The problem was I was in another Starbucks that, that he was in. And uh, we had never met before. And um, so anyhow, we soon figured that out. And we got into the same Starbucks. And we ended up visiting for a number of hours. It was a really, really good time to connect. Um, really good to hear Adam's story and um, it was very challenged uh, in, in that time with him. And since then we've interacted in different ways uh, with all nations or through KFW and in ways like that. So really good to have you here this morning, Adam, looking forward to your story and may God bless you to share that. I asked um, Justin Zare from Ontario, Canada to, to kick us off with prayer here. So Justin, could you just lead us in prayer and then it'll be all yours, Adam. And at the end, we'll have we'll open it up for q and A Q&A time as well. So, okay, let's uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity again this morning to meet in this way, and to hear from other believers. We uh, pray for Brother Adam as he shares of your work where he is, and uh, just bless him, give him strength, and words, and inspiration there. And may we again be. Um, in awe of your work of the kingdom spreading across the globe and uh, pockets of faithful believers around the world mm-hmm. who follow your word and who bless other people around them and meet needs as much as they can and uh, just shine for Jesus wherever they go and help us all to grow in our relationship with you and to become more like you and less of self and uh, continue on faithful to the end. And may this um, time together be an encouragement again for each one of us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Yes. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Are yours, Adam. All right. Well, um, good morning, everyone. Uh, Of course, where I am, it would be good night, but uh, (laughs) it is good to be with you. I'm glad that, uh, Technology makes this uh, possible for us to meet together. And uh, I'm speaking to you today from a place called Ukurumpa in the eastern highlands of Papua New Guinea. And if you're not familiar with Papua New Guinea, it is an island nation located just north of Australia. And I live here along with my wife, Martha, and our three kids, uh, Jacob, who's age 15, Bella, who's 14, and Asher, who is 11. Uh, Now, today I'm going to share a little bit about my spiritual journey, including how I became a Christian and how Martha, my wife, and I uh, came to embrace many of the teachings of uh, conservative Anabaptists and and what many people call kingdom Christianity. 
And I'm sharing about my spiritual journey for a couple of reasons. First, I'm sharing to encourage those of you who grew up in a conservative Anabaptist church to embrace the faith of your forefathers from the 16th century. I know that one of the trends that we see in conservative Anabaptist churches today is that, that many are embracing evangelical theology and slipping away from the beliefs that have been passed down from their forefathers. Now, for me, as a person moving away from the evangelical church, it, it gives me great sadness to see that those who come from a conservative Anabaptist background, some of them are drifting away from their spiritual heritage and embracing uh, you know, modern evangelical theology. So I hope to encourage you not to go that route and to continue following in the footsteps of your spiritual forefathers. But I'm also sharing for anyone listening today who does not come from a Mennonite or a conservative Anabaptist background, uh, but who may be seeking to learn more uh, about those things. And my hope is that you will be encouraged to continue exploring conservative Anabaptists and, and kingdom Christian beliefs and embrace the historic faith that we see in the writings of the early Christians and in the pilgrim movements throughout the centuries, such as, you know, the Waldensians and the Anabaptists. And so those are my goals today as I share a little bit about my own spiritual journey. Now, neither my wife nor I grew up in conservative Anabaptist churches. In fact, apart from the Amish, neither of us really knew much about uh, conservative Anabaptists at all until about four years ago. Uh, but God has been leading us on a journey that has brought us to where we are today. I grew up in the North Hills of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in a place called Wexford, which is right off of Route 79, for those of you who are familiar with Western Pennsylvania. Now, when I was young, I attended a United Methodist Church with my parents, but I don't ever recall hearing a salvation message. Now, that's not to say that it wasn't preached, but I don't recall ever hearing it. And I certainly never heard anything preached uh, about the gospel of the kingdom of God. Church was something that I was forced to go to on Sundays, but our home life didn't really line up with what was taught in the Bible. Now, don't get me wrong. My parents are good people, and I'm very thankful for them. But Jesus was presented in my household, not as our Lord and King, but as something little more than a good moral teacher. Although even then we didn't follow his teachings. Uh, apart from the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. That, you know, we, that was mentioned in our household, but that was about it. We didn't hear much else about the teachings of Jesus. And by the time I got to high school, I developed a, a hostility toward Christianity. And I stopped attending church, except on holidays like Christmas Eve. And I began to see Christians as uneducated, bigoted, judgmental people who did not understand basic principles of science which was the message of the popular media that they would communicate about Christianity. And to be perfectly honest, I still view some segments of Christianity that way. Uh, but at that time, that was how I viewed all Christians. And so I didn't want to have anything to do with Christians or Christianity. Rather, I, I just enjoyed partying with my friends and getting into trouble. Well, after graduating from high school, I went to college, first to Penn State for a year and then to Georgetown University to study business uh, there in Washington, DC. Now, I didn't really have much interest in business, but my father was a businessman. And I was the, under the impression that if I studied business and got a prestigious job on Wall Street or in corporate America and made a lot of money, that that would be my ticket to success and happiness in this life. 
But by my junior year in college, I began to grow disillusioned with that plan. I knew of many people who were wealthy and who had prestigious jobs, but they were not happy. And I began to realize that there was a great emptiness in that path because one day I would die and nothing I had ever done would mean anything. I believed that one day I would simply cease to exist forever and ever. And that was one of the scariest things that I could ever imagine. Now, in order to fill that emptiness, I decided that after graduation, instead of pursuing a career on Wall Street or in corporate America, I would spend a year of my life uh, volunteering in Quito, Ecuador as an English teacher, hoping to, again, to somehow fill that void that I had in my heart. Now, while I was in Ecuador, Ecuador, I met a young lady who was also teaching English with the same organization, and she was a Christian. Now, even though I didn't like her Christianity, I did like her, and we became friends. Now, even though we were friends, I would argue with her all the time about her faith. But no matter what I said, she never wavered in her belief, and, and I was impressed by that. So one night I decided that I would just ask her about her faith and simply listen to whatever she had to say without arguing. So we went to the one place in Quito, Ecuador, where Americans went when they just wanted to relax, McDonald's. And as we started talking about our lives, she started sharing a bit about her own spiritual journey. Now she had had a difficult life as a child. She lost her mother at the age of five. She had an abusive older sister and she went to a school um, where kids were shot and a teacher was even stabbed. Yet through her faith, she had managed to graduate from high school and put herself through college. And I was impressed by what God had done in her life. And so as I went home that night, I had a sense of warmth and joy that I had never before experienced. And there was something special about that night when I just listened to her talk about what God had done in her life. Now, shortly after that, we began dating. Now, I've since learned that 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Uh, but that young lady was also on a spiritual journey and still had some things of her own to learn. And so even though she should not have been dating me, uh, we did date for a while. But because I was not a believer, our relationship did not last very long, and we soon broke up. But on the day that we broke up, I asked her if I could borrow her Bible. But I didn't have good intentions. You see, I was going to read through the Bible and find all of those contradictions that I'd always heard people talk about and point them out to her so that I could prove her wrong once and for all, convert her to being a heathen like myself, and win her back. You see, even though I had gotten a glimpse of God's goodness and kindness when this young lady had shared about her life, I was still fighting against faith in my heart. So again, I began reading the Bible to find all of these contradictions. And, you know, I started in the beginning at Genesis. And, but what happened was by the time I got to Genesis 12, I somehow found myself praying and asking Jesus to forgive me of my sin and become the Lord of my life. Now, I couldn't believe what was happening. And as I started thinking about it, I started to feel ashamed. I thought, oh, no, I'm becoming one of them. I'm becoming one of those Christians, one of those people who uneducated and bigoted and ignorant about basic scientific principles. But I couldn't deny that God was working in my life. 
So the next day I went back to that young lady and I, and I told her what I had done, that I had prayed and I'd asked Jesus to forgive me of my sin and become my Lord and Savior. And we immediately started dating again. And within two weeks, we started talking about getting married. And I'm proud to say that that young lady, Martha, and I have been married now for 19 years with three wonderful children. Now, after becoming a Christian, I found that I had an incredible appetite for scripture. You know, I kept on reading the Bible, finishing the whole thing in two months. And then uh, I decided that I wanted to get rebaptized. You see, I've been baptized as an infant, but when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I felt like I needed to be baptized again. So in that sense, I can say that I am the true Anabaptist, because as you know, Anabaptist literally means someone who practices rebaptism. And so while many of you call yourselves Anabaptists, in the true technical sense of the word, I'm the one who is actually an Anabaptist. Well, Brian, that's what you get for asking a linguist and Bible translator to share, someone who nitpicks on the technical definitions of words. Is well made, brother. <laughs> well, well, anyway, about that time, uh, about the time that I became a Christian, I asked my parents to send me a Greek New Testament. I'm still in Ecuador, and I said, hey, could you send me a Greek New Testament? Because I want to start learning biblical Greek, because I want to read the New Testament in its original language. And, you know, I also started to hear about the thousands of languages in the world that did not have a translation of the Bible. And at that time, God placed in me the desire to become a Bible translator for a, min for a minority language somewhere in the world uh, wow. that did not have the Bible in their own language. And later, I, I went on to study Greek as part of my coursework at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. And, and I also became an ordained minister with the Assemblies of God. In the meantime, over the next 10 years, my wife Martha and I started down the path of becoming Bible translators on three separate occasions. But each time I got frightened by all of the unknowns and particularly, you know, how, we'd, how we would raise our funds to serve as missionaries overseas. And so even though we felt this calling three times, each time uh, we didn't follow through with what God was calling us to do. And honestly, I put Bible translation completely out of my mind. But then I started reading a booklet called Affirming the Will of God. And I remember very clearly reading that booklet and I, and I was just stopped in my tracks as I got to page 11, where the author said, are you willing to accept the will of God before knowing what it is? Are you willing to accept the will of God before knowing what it is? And I thought, no, I'm not. That's my problem. You know, I, I want God to lay it all out for me first so that I can decide whether or not I'm going to follow and obey. And I realized that attitude was completely wrong, that I needed to just accept the will of God before I even knew what it was and it would be ready, no matter what God said to me, that I would be ready just to say yes. So right then and there, I prayed and I told God that I would do whatever he called me to do, no matter what. And within a couple of weeks, he placed Bible translation back in my heart and I committed to doing what he was calling me to do. Hmm. Now, although my wife, Martha, had always wanted to be a missionary, she had pretty much given up on me by that point and moved on. So when I told her that I was yet again sensing that God was calling me to Bible translation work. Um, sorry, I'm turning off my email so it doesn't ding in my ear here. Um, 
So when I told my wife, Martha, that I was again sensing that God was calling me to Bible translation work, she was no longer excited. She was filled with fear because now she was the mother of a five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a three-week-old baby. But as she was up uh, nursing late one night, when that fear came over her, she heard the Lord speaking to her heart saying, Martha, be strong and courageous. And she says that the fear left her in that moment and never returned. So Martha and I were now both committed to following the Lord's call on our life. But two and a half months later, Martha suffered a massive heart attack. It was a rare condition related to the birth of our third child. And as a result of the heart attack, Martha suffered significant heart damage and was diagnosed as having heart failure. We were told that if her heart didn't improve over the next few months, that she would need to have a defibrillator implanted in her chest to make sure that her heart would not one day just stop beating. Now, after recovering from the initial shock of this massive heart attack that came out of nowhere, uh, we started considering our our future. And and honestly, we thought, well, we're going to have to give up on our plans of becoming Bible translators and living in some remote part of the world uh, far away from good medical care. I mean, that's not going to work now. But as we were thinking about that, my, my pastor at the time said to me, he said, Adam, you have the missions bug and it's not going away. And unless you sense God telling you otherwise, I would encourage you to move forward with your plans. So we decided to trust in the Lord, to move forward and attend the University of North Dakota for that summer to study linguistics. And the whole time we didn't know if all of our efforts would be in vain if Martha's heart did not recover. Now, while we were at the University of North Dakota studying linguistics, we met a number of people whom I now know were conservative Anabaptists from a few different groups. And they were there studying in the same linguistics program that we were. And although Martha and I were becoming missionaries, in some ways we were very immature in our faith. And we knew almost nothing about, you know, modest clothing or radical obedience to the teachings of Jesus. And so because, because we were somewhat immature in our faith and because uh, we did not embrace modest clothing, we, we honestly felt like some of the conservative Anabaptists there looked at us and kind of looked down on us with, with judgmental eyes, which was discouraging. But there was a young couple there from a, a beachy Amish Mennonite background, uh, Emmanuel and Phoebe King, and we became friends with them. And they never made us feel judged, but instead they were, they were very kind and loving. And we kept in touch with them over the years as, uh, you know, I send out a newsletter every month and, and Emmanuel would receive our newsletter and from time to time he would respond. And so that was our first introduction to the conservative Anabaptist world. And in, in retrospect, sometimes we feel like we faced more cultural shock during our time in North Dakota than we did when we first arrived in Papua New Guinea. Now, when we returned home after our 10-week course in North Dakota, Martha had a follow-up echocardiogram to check on her heart. Now, this was the moment where we were going to find out if Martha's heart had recovered or not, and whether we would indeed be able to pursue what we felt was God's calling in our life to serve as Bible translators in Papua New Guinea. So this was a big moment. And so Martha went in for the echocardiogram, and as the technician was performing the exam, she said to Martha, I have good news for you. Your heart has improved dramatically. Amazing. Martha's 
Martha's heart had made significant progress. She no longer had heart failure. And so soon after that, we received approval to serve as Bible translators here in Papua New Guinea. And we praise God. Praise God for answered prayers. Amen. So we arrived in Papua New Guinea in January 2012 and soon allocated to work with the Enga people. Now, Enga is the largest vernacular language in Papua New Guinea with roughly 400,000 speakers. It's also one of the most violent places in the country with constant tribal fighting. And we ultimately decided to live among what had been one of the most violent tribes in Enga. You know, it's funny, when we first decided that we were going to go to Papua New Guinea, people in America tried to dissuade us, saying, you know, Papua New Guinea is a very violent country, and, and you have a young family, and it's probably not safe for them, and, and aren't there still cannibals there? And, well, not really. Besides, I don't think that I would taste very good. But the, people were discouraging us, you know, saying it's dangerous, don't go there. Then when we went to Papua New Guinea and decided to work in Enga, people tried to dissuade us, saying, well, Enga is the most violent place in Papua New Guinea. You know, don't go there. And then once we got to Enga, we decided that we were going to live among the Juapin tribe in a village called Imi. And then the Enga people themselves tried to dissuade us, saying, well, the Juapin tribe, they're the most violent people in Enga. Don't go there. And I said, you know what? If I had listened to advice like that, I never would have come to Papua New Guinea in the first place. So we decided to live with the Duopin tribe in the village of Imi, eventually building a house among them on the land of a man named Benjamin. Now, we had met Benjamin early on, and he quickly became one of our best friends. He was always very kind, respectful, and polite, and he did his best to help me learn Enga. So you can imagine how shocked I was one day as we rode a bus into town and he starts pointing out to me all the villages as we're passing by them that he himself had burned to the ground in tribal fighting. And I was further shocked when he later revealed to me that he had burned down the administrative offices of a local Christian international school and had even been planning on murdering the two American students who were at the school at that time. We came to find out that this friendly, gentle, humble man had been his tribe's best warrior, and that he had even been hired as a mercenary to fight for other tribes. Now, when I learned about Benjamin's past, I was angry. I was angry with him. I couldn't believe that I had let this man become uh, a good friend of mine. But the Lord reminded me of my own sin, and the Lord reminded me of how much I myself had been forgiven. And so I realized that I had to release my anger toward Benjamin and accept him as the brother in Christ that he had now become. So at the end of our first stay in the village of Emi, during a public ceremony at the church, I presented Benjamin with an axe and a Bible. And first I gave him the axe. And I, as I was giving it to him, I held up the axe and I said, before your lives were based on weapons like these and you used them to kill and destroy. Then I held up the Bible as I gave it to him. And I said, now your lives are based on the word of God. And those axes that you used to use to kill and destroy will now be used to build new homes and a new life based on the word of God. Amen. Now, because we had not yet started our translation into the Anga language, I had to give Benjamin a Bible in the trade language of Tok Pizan. Now, Benjamin had never owned a Bible before. 
And after my presentation, he went to the front to say a few words. And as he tried to speak, tears came streaming down his face as he, he clutched his Bible and he kept staring down at it. And, and he, he tried to read it a little bit and he, he's sounding out each word syllable by syllable because he'd never gone to school or had any formal reading instruction. And he had difficulty speaking because of the emotion he felt. And it was evident that God was truly at work in his life. And he remains one of my closest and dearest friends among the Enga people to this day. Wow. Now we live in two, two different places in Papua New Guinea. The missionary center called Ukarumba, which is where I am right now, and the village of Imi in Enga province where we have a village house. Now toward the end of our first term in Papua New Guinea, uh, this would have been in 2015, during a time when we we're out in the village in Enga, our home here in Ukarumpa was broken into, and many of our things were stolen, including a watch that my wife Martha had given me for my birthday. Now, we suspected that the thief was someone from Kuina Village, uh, which is just behind our house, because that village had a very bad reputation for criminals, or as they call them here, rascals. Now, again, we're out in the village in Enga. We're not at our house when the break-in happens. Uh, but when I first heard about the break-in, I was very angry. And I, I even began to have anger fantasies in which I envisioned the thief returning one night and me bashing his head in with a baseball bat. I even began keeping a baseball bat by my bedside at night specifically for that purpose. You see, I'd never heard of non-resistance at that point in my life. And I found myself imprisoned in an eye-for-eye and tooth for tooth mentality. But at the same time, I knew that the anger I was feeling was not right. And so instead of being angry and afraid, Martha and I decided that we would visit the village behind us and begin building relationships with the people there. And we decided that when we went to the village, that if we saw anything that belonged to us, we weren't going to say anything because it wouldn't help us to build relationships and there's really very little we could do about it anyway. And so I remember we, on our first visit to the village, uh, we made our way up a long path. It's sort of on a hillside up to the village and it wasn't long before we met a young man named Yonki. And as I met Yonki, he came forward to shake my hand. And as he reached his hand forward, I looked at his other hand and I saw the watch that my wife Martha had given me for my birthday. Now I'm glad that we had decided ahead of time what we were gonna do because I didn't say anything. I saw my watch, but I, I didn't say anything to him. And I just shook his hand and smiled and, and talked with him. And as we're talking, you know, I, I was telling him a little bit myself and I said, hey, you see that blue house down there? That's my house, that's where we live. And as soon as I said that, his arm that he had with the watch on, he immediately put it behind his back. And as we keep talking, he's fiddling around behind his back, removing the watch, and he slips the watch into his pocket. And so it became pretty clear to me that this was the young man who had broken into our house and stolen a bunch of things from us. But when I saw that young man's face, I realized that he was no hardened criminal. He was just a young man getting into mischief like so many young men in America and like I did when I was younger. And in that moment, I forgave him in my heart. And, and I was released from the anger that had imprisoned me in a state of fear 
and anxiety. A few months later, as we were preparing, as we were preparing to come home on our first furlough, uh, Martha and I had decided that instead of having a yard sale to sell a bunch of things we didn't need, see, when you buy a house here, you buy the house and everything in it. And so there was a bunch of stuff that the prior owners had left that we didn't need. And so we wanted to have, we said, instead of having a yard sale to sell all this stuff, let's just take all this stuff and give it to that village behind us. And so one Sunday, we invited them all to gather together. And when they were all present, I said to the whole village, I said, I know that most of you in this village are good people, but somebody from this village broke into our house and stole from us. And if we were to follow the ways of your ancestors, then I would be obligated to take revenge and pay you back for what you have done to us. But I'm a Christian and the Bible says that we are to repay evil with blessing. And so although your village did evil to us, we are repaying that evil with blessing and giving you all of these things. And we want you to know that we forgive you. Now, it may sound strange to you that I forgave the entire village, but in Papua New Guinea, the entire village bears the responsibility and guilt for any individual's actions. And so it was appropriate for me to extend forgiveness to the entire village. From that point forward, our relationship with the people of the village improved. And they even prepared a feast for us the next time we visited. We later heard that three of the women in the village had become Christians, and we were blessed to be able to help them attend literacy classes to learn how to read the Bible. Now, I had never, like I said, I would never heard of non-resistance at that point. But it seems that God was preparing me for what was to come on our next furlough in this latter half of 2015 and then into 2016. So soon after that, we did return to the United States on furlough. And I have to say, I was very disillusioned with what I saw. Our pastor, who had encouraged us to go to Papua New Guinea, had, had now moved on to the district office, and there was a new pastor. This new pastor had been dismissed from his prior church after being unfaithful to his wife while counseling a female member of the church alone in his office. And after a period of four years of him undergoing disciplinary action and counseling, he was permitted to pastor again. And so he became the senior pastor of our home church. Now he embraces what is called a seeker sensitive model of church, which goes to great lengths to make church seem attractive to non-believers. Now that isn't necessarily a bad thing to try to make your church a place where non-believers feel welcome, but it can be taken to an unhealthy extreme. For example, on our first Sunday back in the United States, instead of a sermon, there was a husband and wife team doing a performance. The husband went on stage first and did magic tricks for 10 minutes. And then his wife came on stage and performed a water torture chamber escape act. And what that means is that she was handcuffed and put into a water tank, a huge water tank, where she had to free herself from the handcuffs and escape out of that tank before she drowned. And she did all of this while wearing a skin-tight black water suit. Now, not only did this happen on our first Sunday back in America after three and a half years in Papua New Guinea, but it happened again. The very same couple was back again performing the same act on Easter Sunday. Now, at the end, they did share a salvation message, but the whole thing seemed inappropriate for a Sunday morning service, especially for an Easter morning service. 
But this was the church's attempt to make church seem appealing to outsiders. On other occasions, our church brought in people from popular TV shows like The Bachelor, uh, which is a show in which one man or one woman dates many different people all at once to try to find his or her potential spouse and offer, often pursuing different levels of physical intimacy with multiple people at a time. On another occasion, the church brought in Miss Covina, the local beauty pageant queen, who also wore a very tight, immodest dress and, and shared a very shallow, superficial testimony. Now, after the service, people were invited to take pictures with her and post them on Facebook to promote the church. It seemed that the seeker-sensitive model at our home church promoted trying to become like the world in order to win the world. But if you become like the world in order to win the world, then what have you actually won them to? It was just a smokescreen of gimmicks and marketing to get people into the church. And we wondered what in the world was happening to our church. The other difficulty we encountered during our furlough was the presidential election. Now, I don't want to get into politics, but this is an important part of our journey. My wife, Martha, and I became greatly disillusioned as Donald Trump gained the Republican nomination and eventually won the presidency with 80% of evangelicals supporting him. We couldn't believe how evangelicals were rallying around this man who had been divorced three times, who lied incessantly, who was so rude and demeaning to other people, and who bragged about sexually assaulting women. And we were shocked that prominent evangelical leaders were even buying into the idea that Donald Trump was a Christian. Now, Romans 13 tells us that the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And so I recognize that God appoints whomsoever he will to various governmental positions throughout the world. And I do not question what God is doing. What I do question is why professing Christians would rally around such a man, even to the point of saying things like Donald Trump will restore righteousness to America. Somebody said that to us in our house, actually here in Papua New Guinea. Statements like that bordered on blasphemy. It's not, it's not a politician that restores righteousness. That's the work of God. That's the work of Jesus Christ. And it, it became clear that evangelicals were placing their hope in a politician and were seeking to bring about the kingdom of God through political processes. And so as a result, we became extremely disillusioned with the state of the evangelical church in America. And we saw that there was something terribly, terribly wrong with the church. I would go on to have conversations with people in which they would justify their support of Donald Trump by saying that they were choosing the lesser of two evils. But it made me wonder why we have to actively support any evil at all. Would Jesus choose to support the lesser of two evils? Or would he choose to support neither of them? It's a false dichotomy that we have to support one evil or the other. When the reality is that we don't have to support any evil at all. So we were in a crisis Amen. as we considered the state of the church and the state of evangelicalism in America. And we were ashamed to call ourselves evangelicals. And what I just shared with you now, I could not share in most evangelical churches without receiving tremendous backlash from the people in the church. Now, just a few weeks before, as our, as our first furlough was coming to an end, uh, around June 2016, and we're getting ready to return to Papua New Guinea, I was having lunch with a friend of mine uh, who was a fellow Assemblies of God minister. And he was talking about some work that he had done with refugees in the Middle East. 
And during the course of our conversation, he made the comment that he was 99% Anabaptist at heart. And as soon as he said that, I was reminded of a small booklet that I had read many years prior called The Anabaptist Vision by Harold S. Bender. I had come across that booklet when I was working on staff at our home church and, and feeling disillusioned about the church, which seemed to be very strong on evangelism and leadership development, but very weak on discipleship and obedience to the teachings of Jesus. But I was longing for a church where followership was more important than leadership. And so now I came across this booklet, the, the Anabaptist Vision. And that booklet kindled a fire in my heart to learn more about radical discipleship and obedience to the teachings of Jesus. I even reached out to a local MCUSA pastor who invited us to an event. But suffice it to say, the vision that I had read about in the Anabaptist Vision seemed to be absent from the MCUSA church we had contacted. And so I quickly forgot about the Anabaptist vision. But when my pastor friend who I was having lunch with, when he said that he was 99% Anabaptist at heart, my own heart was reignited. And I went home and I dug out the Anabaptist vision and I read it again. And I was inspired all over again toward radical obedience to the teachings of Jesus. And it just so happened that a couple of weeks later, I heard from my beachy friend, Emmanuel, whom I had met at North Dakota six years prior. He had responded to one of my newsletters, as he often did, with words of encouragement. And I wrote to him and I told him that I was interested in learning more about Anabaptist churches. Well, that began a long chain of emails back and forth and in which we discussed what uh, Anabaptism, especially conservative Anabaptism, is all about. And Emmanuel recommended that I read books by Dean Taylor and David Verso and Finney Caravilla. And he also explained to me the difference between pacifism and biblical non-resistance. Now, I have to say that reading those books was one of the most exciting times of my life, as I realized that I no longer had to pretend that the Bible didn't say some of the things that it said. Hallelujah. I could now embrace the teachings of Jesus and the apostles in simple childlike faith without having to explain anything away. It was a wonderfully liberating experience. For example, I no longer had to explain why it was acceptable for a Christian to kill people in battle when the Bible teaches us to love our enemies. Nor did I have to explain why a Christian could take oaths when Jesus says, swear not at all. Nor did I have to explain away, you know, why our salvation, even though it is a free gift, is contingent upon our obedience. For example, when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I can now embrace that God's forgiveness of our sins is contingent upon our forgiveness of other people's sins. So in short, I came to embrace beliefs about the Bible that Conrad Grable had articulated nearly 500 years ago. One, I believe the word of God without a complicated interpretation, and out of this belief, I speak. Amen. And two, the teaching of the Lord has been given for the purpose of being put into practice. And of course, as I read Dean Taylor's book, A Change of Allegiance, the way I read scripture was forever changed by Dean's simple question, what if Jesus really meant every word he said? Coming to embrace that view of scripture was a revolutionary period in my life 
that I will never forget. And that will be with me for the rest of my life. But I would be lying if I said that adopting a conservative Anabaptist or a kingdom Christian approach to scripture, faith and practice uh, did not have its challenges. At first, it caused quite a bit of tension in my marriage. As my wife Martha and I tried to navigate what it meant for us as a couple and for us as a family. And what we would do with things like wedding rings and head coverings and, and, and things like that. But not only did we have tension in our marriage, but we also had tension in our missionary community here. Because, you know, I was excited. I was on fire. And I began to preach about non-resistance in the English service among the missionary community here in Ukarumpa. And as I preached, I invited people to consider the fact that as missionaries in Papua New Guinea, we see ourselves as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And as a result, we don't get involved in the politics of Papua New Guinea. We don't serve in the army or on the police force. And we certainly do not participate in or take sides in the frequent tribal fighting that erupts all around us. Because we know that if we were to get involved in politics or participate or take sides in tribal fighting, that it would hamper our work as ambassadors of God's kingdom. That is so clear for us when we serve as missionaries in Papua New Guinea. But why should it be any different when we are in our home countries? We're still ambassadors of God's kingdom. Our true citizenship is still in heaven and not in the country of our birth. And our involvement in the politics and wars of the kingdoms of this world still hamper our work for the kingdom of God. So why do we involve ourselves in the politics and wars of the kingdoms of our birth rather than focusing all of our efforts on the kingdom of God? The country of our true citizenship. Amen. But as I preached, but as I preached messages like that and had discussions like that with people, many people were unhappy that I would challenge the American ideal of God and country, and express the fact that a Christian could not serve in the military without having his loyalties divided between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. More than one person was concerned that I was exhibiting cult-like behavior. And so there was tension at home, there was tension in the community, uh, which made for a difficult three years on the field. Well, in July of 2019, we returned to the United States for our second furlough. And after only about three weeks at home, we set out on a road trip that eventually brought us to Boston, Massachusetts, where we stayed with Finney Curavilla and his family at their house and attended a Followers of the Way church service. Now, you have to remember, we basically all of our uh, exploration of conservative Anabaptists and kingdom Christianity was happening remotely as we're in Papua New Guinea and uh, communicating with people via email and on Internet forums. And we'd actually never met anybody uh, who embraced this lifestyle. And so I can't tell you how nervous we were as we pulled up to the Cura Villa house and saw ladies wearing full blown head coverings. And our kids started panicking and telling us to turn back. Uh, not to mention the fact that Finney, as many of you know, is a quite a brilliant person and a, a bit intimidating due to his extensive knowledge and education. But our fear subsided as, a bit as we got to know their family and spent some time with the followers of the Way congregation. But truly, it felt like a trial by fire, to say the least. And wow. at that point, Martha was only head covering on Sundays, and we were still wearing 
our wedding rings. And so we didn't quite fit in. Then we headed to Martha's friend's house in Maryland, where we had some downtime before our next stop, which would be in State College, Pennsylvania, where we would be staying at the All Nations Bible Translation guest house. And uh, I'm sure you all know that All Nations Bible Translation is a conservative Anabaptist Bible translation organization. Now, I had been in touch with uh, a man named Ernest Eby, who I'm sure many of you know, who manages the property there, uh, or, or he was at that time. And we had uh, become good friends remotely via email. Uh, he was always very gracious in answering all of our questions, and so we look forward to meeting him and his family in person, as well as seeing Emmanuel and Phoebe King again, uh, our beachy friends that we had met in North Dakota, uh, as well as Joel Martin and, and Aaron Kreider, who, as you probably know, are on the All Nations Bible Translation Leadership Team and with whom we'd had some communication. Now, Ernest had invited me ahead of time to share a little bit about our story, uh, just as I'm doing here today. But he had asked me ahead of time if we would be comfortable removing our wedding rings, which by then we didn't really have a problem with, especially if it was only for the short time that we were with them. But while we were still in Maryland at Martha's friend's house, who had no nothing about conservative Anabaptists, Martha tried to remove her ring only to find out that it was quite stuck on her finger, as over time the ring had changed shape from a circle to more of an oval. And so without really explaining the reason why, we, we had to ask Martha's friend's husband to get some pliers uh, to round out the ring so that Martha could get it off because uh, the ring had become more of like an oval. And as we pressed in on the ring to try to make it more of a circle, it actually buckled and became even tighter on Martha's finger. Uh, but somehow after Martha tried for about an hour, she was able to get the ring off. And, and honestly, after such an ordeal, she had no desire to ever put that ring back on again. And so even today, we continue without our wedding rings. Uh, but those are practical difficulties that they don't tell you about when you are seeking to live a more conservative Anabaptist lifestyle. And I would encourage you, I would encourage you to be very patient and understanding with these sorts of things as you interact with seekers from non-Mennonite backgrounds. Wedding rings and head coverings may not seem like a big deal to you, but removing wedding rings and wearing head coverings can be very, very big issues for seekers. Well, we had a very nice visit with Ernest Eby and his family and the folks at All, Nation, uh, All Nations Bible Translation. And Ernest even took us to meet uh, David and Deborah Berceau and, and John D. Martin and his wife, Patricia. And, and I think by the end of our time there, our kids did not want to meet any more people. Uh, so a few weeks later, <laughs> a few weeks later, Martha and I uh, left the kids with my parents in Pittsburgh and attended Kingdom Fellowship Weekend. Uh, and I think most of you know what that is. You know, it's an annual gathering of like-minded folks who embrace the gospel of the kingdom of God. Uh, there, Martha made a commitment to try head covering for 30 days, and she continues to do so as a daily practice even today. Now, after spending the first, after spending the first half of our furlough in western Pennsylvania with my parents, we drove out to Los Angeles to spend the second half of our furlough uh, with Martha's family and many of the churches that support us. And we were also able to fellowship with Brother Dean Wilson, who I, I think probably some of you know through Facebook, and the LA Christian Fellowship. And thankfully, we were even able to meet in person with the LA Christian Fellowship a couple of times before COVID hit. And then after COVID hit, uh, it was in some ways a blessing in disguise for the LA Christian Fellowship, because up to that point, they were only able to get together once a month. 
But once COVID hit, they were getting together every week uh, via conference call. And so we would join in on those conference calls uh, most of the weeks when we didn't have another obligation. And I would even preach from time to time in the conference call uh, service. In fact, I'm still working through a sermon series on Romans 9 to 11 that I'm recording here. And then Brother Dean is playing as they meet uh, via conference call. Wow. Now, we were scheduled to return to Papua New Guinea in July of 2020, but due to COVID, we were not able to return until October of last year. Uh, and thankfully, we were able to get on a special charter flight of the United Nations through something called the World Food Program. Otherwise, I don't think we'd be here. And so here we are on our journey of faith. And I, I remind Martha and, and myself that our ultimate goal is not to become Mennonites, uh, but to live in faithful obedience to the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, which just so happens to put us in contact with many conservative Mennonites and Anabaptists and kingdom Christians. Uh, so that is the journey that the Lord has led us on, which has brought us to be with you here today. But before I close, I want to share with you one final story about the practical outworking of the doctrine of biblical non-resistance in my life. As I've discussed non-resistance with people, one of the points that they tend to bring up is the notion that being what they call a pacifist means being passive in the face of evil. And I think many of us have heard the quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And the implication, of course, is that if you do not take up arms against evil, then you are doing nothing. That's, that's what that quote really means. That's what people really mean when they say that that you have to fight, you have to uh, kill the enemy, you have to kill evil. But true non-resistance is not passive toward evil. It's just that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, and we do not war according to the flesh because our kingdom is not of this world. We are citizens of God's kingdom. And so we do battle according to the laws of that kingdom and not according to the laws of the kingdoms of this world. So with that, I share with you this final story. On Monday morning, May 7th, 2018, during my morning devotionals at our village house in Anga, I was reading through 2 Corinthians, and I was really struck by the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, which say, We ourselves had the answer of death within ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises, the, who raises the dead, who delivered us out of so great a death and does deliver, on whom we have set our hope that he will also still deliver us. Now, I don't know if you ever read scripture and you just, you feel like, you know, the scripture is just blinking at you or, or the Holy Spirit is highlighting it for you. But that's how I felt when I read that scripture. Now, in that passage, Paul is discussing the trials that he faced in Ephesus and the fact that he was ready to die as he went about his ministry, trusting that God was able to deliver him and, and, that, and trusting that God will indeed one day raise us from the dead, even if we are to die for our faith. Now, as I said, for reasons unbeknownst to me at that time, that scripture just penetrated deeply into my heart. And it was like God was saying, pay attention to this. And, and I was praying that God would give me courage to put my life on the line for him, trusting that he would deliver me. Now, in Enga, uh, where we live in the village, uh, 
a horrible, horrible practice has arisen in the past few years. Uh, and this is what they do. They falsely accuse women of practicing sorcery, and then they torture and kill them. Now, these accusations of sorcery are made, uh, often made when there is an unexpected illness or death. You see, in the Enga way of thinking, really the Papua New Guinean way of thinking, everything has a spiritual cause. And so if someone unexpectedly becomes sick or dies, then people automatically assume that someone must be up to no good in the spiritual realm, and they must be performing sorcery or witchcraft. And so as this practice has become more and more prevalent, I've been teaching our Bible translation team that I work with, and I've been preaching in the churches there in Anga, that we as Christians need to combat this practice of falsely accusing women of practicing witchcraft or sorcery and then torturing and killing them. But people are scared to stand up against this practice because they know that if they do, they might, they might also be accused of practicing witchcraft. It's very similar to what happened in Salem, Massachusetts with the Salem witch trials in the late 17th century. People are scared to stand up against it. And, and honestly, some of the Christians, even some of the pastors, they're not quite sure if these women are really practicing sorcery or not. They're, they're really on the fence about the whole thing. And so I would preach and teach that, that if we as Christians just stand on the sidelines and let these uh, tortures uh, and killings happen because we're worried about saving our own lives, then we have missed the point of what Jesus has taught us when he said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So on Tuesday, May 8th, one day after I read that scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10 in my morning devotions, I was at work uh, as usual with the translation team. You know, we usually start translation work about nine in the morning and then go to about four in the afternoon working in, in the town there. And so we finished up work at four o'clock as usual and, and the rest of the team left. But because of some unusual computer problems we were having that day, uh, my coworker Nere and I, Stayed at work for about 30 minutes as I tried to resolve the computer problems. And then after about 30 minutes, I got those resolved. And just as we were about to leave, Frank, one of the other translators, returned to the translation office. And he had news for us. He said, he said, Adam, there are two women locked in a small trade store just outside of town. And they've been accused of stealing the heart of a young child and eating it. And... The, the accusers are saying that because they stole the young child's heart and ate it, that the child has died. Now, this was clearly a false accusation. And I was struck by the fact that it was now time to practice what I had been preaching and to go stand up for those women. So Frank, Nere, and I immediately decided that we needed to try to rescue those two women, knowing that exact uh, accusations like this typically lead to women being first being burned all over their body with hot iron rods and then ultimately killed. But we didn't want to be stupid. So we, we went to the police station first and told them what was happening, but we couldn't get any of the police officers to come with us because they also believe that women are stealing people's hearts and eating them and causing them to die. Only one officer came with us and that's because he lives in the village where I live, and I often give him rides into town to go to work. But he was unarmed. 
Now, as we were at the police station trying to get the police to go with us, a, a relative of one of the two women who was being held uh, also jumped into my truck with us. Uh, and he saw that what we were doing. And so we drove my truck to the market area where we heard that these two women were being held. And it's just a short, a very short drive. Uh, but during that two minute drive to the market area, I was filled with fear. And I prayed like I'd never prayed before. And I asked God to make a way for us to rescue those two women. Mm. I then called Martha and I asked her to pray as, as I could, you know, went ahead with my fear. I had no idea what we would do once we got there. I had no idea how we could help these women. Um, the only thing I knew is that whatever we did, we would not be using violence, um, but that we would somehow try to intervene for these women. And I even prayed and said, God, if, if I have to offer myself in exchange for these women uh, so, so that they can be set free, let me do that. Give me the strength to do that. But honestly, I hoped that it would not come to that. I did not want that prayer to be answered, but I did pray it. Now, as we arrived in that market area, it was about the size of um, uh, maybe a, a couple basketball courts. And there's about 200 people uh, standing around the market area, 200 Papua New Guineans. And I'm sure they all know what's going on. And as we got out of the truck, I asked somebody where the store was and they, they said it's over there. And I saw that the store was actually not locked as I had heard, but actually the door is wide open. And so I just decided I was gonna just walk over across this market area to the store. And then, well, I didn't have a plan after that. Uh, that was it. I was just gonna walk over there. And so I start walking across this market area and you know, these 200 people milling around, they're all staring at me because it's very, very unusual to see uh, a foreigner like me in this area. Uh, so they're all just staring at me. So I casually walk across this market area and I, I go into the store and uh, look around and I see, a, a, I only see three people. I see a man sitting by the door and then I see another man standing here. And then I see a woman sitting on a pool table. Uh, and, he, and it looks like this man here is interrogating the woman sitting on the pool table. So I walked up to her and asked her, uh, I said, are these men saying bad things about you? Uh, but she didn't reply. And so I just took her by the hand, helped her down off the pool table, and I started leading her out of the store. Now, because of the fear and anxiety I was feeling at this time, I have to admit that I was experiencing tunnel vision and I did not see the other woman sitting beside her on the pool table. And I didn't see the 50 men that were gathered together in that store. Somebody told me that's about how many there were in there. I never saw them. Uh, but fortunately, the relative of that other woman who had joined, who had gotten into my truck at the police station, uh, he saw his relative and he went and followed my lead and he went and grabbed her hand. And he started walking her out uh, behind me. And so we just walk, start walking slowly across this market area. And again, <laughs> people are not used to seeing a foreigner like me just go into, and intervene in this sort of situation. And so everybody's just kind of frozen. They don't know what to do. They don't know what they're seeing. And which helped us because we were able to get to the truck, put the two ladies in the truck. Everybody, you know, my coworkers, Frank and Nettie got in the truck. The relative of the one lady got in the truck and we all got in and, and I went and sat down in the front seat and we, we drive on the opposite side. We sit on the opposite side. So I'm sitting down in the front seat and I go to shut my door. And as I go to shut it, somebody must have gotten his sentence, senses back as to what was happening here. And as I went to shut my door, he grabbed my door. Uh, he was not going to let me shut my door and drive off with these two women. Now, I had come to embrace non-resistance at this point. 
but I figured that it wouldn't hurt to just pull the door a little harder. <laughs> and so I pulled the door a little harder and he released his grip and I immediately locked, locked the door with my elbow and went to the door behind and locked it and they locked it on the other side, which was good because immediately people started trying to open the doors back up. And then I did what they call in Tokpizen, which is the national language here. I did what they call give him 60, give him 60, meaning give it 60 kilometers per hour. In English, we would probably say, put the pedal to the metal. And so I put the pedal to the metal and we sped off and uh, we carried those women in the truck safely uh, from that circumstance. Um, and the whole thing had only taken about three minutes. I was shocked. Uh, and I called Martha and I said, hey, we got, we got some dinner guests coming. Uh, you know, get everything ready. She was shocked too that only three minutes had passed and took those two women to our house. They spent the night at our house and had what I'm wow. pretty sure was their, was their first ever taco dinner. Um, but <laughs> we praise the Lord that he made a way for us to help those women who were in trouble without resorting to, to any violence. And we praise the Lord that we could resist the evil one without resisting evil men. Mm. Now, Frank, my coworker, returned to that market area later that afternoon to assess the situation. And he then called me and told me that people were saying that I must be the Papa Sanguma, which basically means the father of witchcraft or the father of sorcery. And that I had come there to rescue my own witches out of this situation. And they were saying that my coworkers were my minions. Um, and, you know, hearing accusations like that, you know, as a foreigner, I can kind of get away with things that Papua New Guineans can't get away with. But if they accused another Papua New Guinean of that, he would be in deep trouble um, and they would likely go after him. But because I'm a foreigner, I can get away with things. But it reminded me, those accusations reminded me of what Jesus, of what they said about Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, what Jesus said when he was casting out demons and opposing the work of Satan. Uh, and he was accused by doing so. Uh, by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Jesus' words in Matthew, 20, Matthew 10, 25 rang true to me in a way they hadn't before, where he said, if they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Mm. Well, I will conclude there, and thank you for your time <clears throat> listening to me share about uh, our spiritual journey toward embracing some of the tenets of conservative and a baptism and Kingdom Christianity. It's my pleasure to be with you today. So thank you. Thank you, Brother Adam. Wow. What a, what a meal you've served us up this morning. What a challenge. I'm, I'm touched and uh, hardly know, know what to say. And I want you to know that um, you mentioned at the beginning, you, you kind of gave a defense how, how you are an Anabaptist. <laughs> And you, you don't need to do that, brother. Uh, you're, you're a follower of Jesus. And you have embraced the gospel and the kingdom in the way that many of us, that in the way I, you know, I feel that I haven't embraced it. Um, and that's what's so beautiful. Uh, God is at work in people's lives. And we can have names and be part of movements, but be so far from the truth. And God is raising up children from, uh, of Abraham from, from stones. Um, please don't be offended there, brother. Um, but your, your story is, is beautiful and powerful. And thank you for being brave and, and sharing that story this morning. Um, what, a, what, a, what a challenge. Um, so I'm just going to open it up here right shortly um, for 
for anyone to ask, ask you a question. Um, but I have kind of a, just more of a practical question for you. Um, as I thought about your journey and my interactions with, with other people in my life currently right now, who, <clears throat> who the man, the brother is, you know, seeking kingdom Christianity. He's on a journey. Who's married and has a wife who is not uh, maybe in the same place. And you, you talked about that. And I know that your wife is a very strong lady. Um, you mentioned stories about her earlier and my interactions with you. She's, she's a, a, a dear sister who really cares deeply about her beliefs. And, and um, I know that, um, you know, it, that's been a journey for you all as a couple, maybe would there be like um, a, uh, a tip or two uh, of how, for people who are in, in that situation where their wife um, isn't, isn't in the same place, uh, what advice would you, would you have? Would you have for that situation? I remember I had some communication with, uh, with Finney early on. I read his book and emailed him and he interacted with me and he told me to be patient. And that was really good <laughs> advice. Um, and I would share that advice with others too, to be patient and understanding and loving um, and don't let, uh, that change how you treat your wife and love your wife. Um, and I, I never told my wife, you know, you need to head cover or you need to take off your wedding ring or, or any of those things. Um, they were all decisions that she made. Um, and it took, you know, it took probably three years for her to reach those decisions. Um, and so, yeah, I would, I would not recommend trying to force anything. Um, that's not how the Holy Spirit works. Holy Spirit doesn't work by forcing himself upon anybody, but it really needs to be somebody's own conviction. Otherwise it's, it's quite meaningless. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would say be, be patient and understanding and loving. And Martha says what changed her was, uh, seeing a change in me. And so, uh, if, if your wife is seeing changes in you, positive changes, uh, that might make her more open to the things that you're exploring. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, well, let's, let's open it up. Um, any questions from anyone here? And let's be quick about it. Don't, not, not hold out. Just pop right in and ask your question. Did you get your watch back? <laughs> no, I never got my watch back. But when I told the story at a few different churches on furlough, I got plenty of other watches. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I asked the question wasn't because I thought you needed a watch. I thought maybe there was more story to that young man's um, uh, seeking or something. I, I was just hoping there was another part to this story. I was hoping maybe, there was too. Um, maybe, maybe there still will be. Well, I had, after that initial encounter, I had determined that the next time I went back, I was going to find that young man and tell him that I knew what happened, but that I forgave him. And I was going to give him um, a recording of scripture in his own language. Uh, but I never saw him again. Hmm. I don't think, I think he was just there temporarily. And I think he's, he's somewhere else now. And so I never saw him again, but I, I too was hoping that it would have another uh, chapter to that story. But he knows, he knows that I know, he knows that I know what he did and he knows that I didn't respond in kind. 
And so I'm just trusting that the Lord will use that in his life. Do you get um, used of joining a works religion from your former background? Um, no, I think a, a little bit. Uh, I've been accused of teaching a false gospel. Um, and then people try to twist things. For example, you know, I've, I've shared a lot about uh, David Berceau and some of his teachings and his books. And somebody said, well, I know a man who read David Berceau's book and that man, man beat, uh, beats his wife. Is that what David Berceau teaches, that you should beat your wife? <laughs> that's, that, you know, it's completely unfair questions. Like, well, just because that man beats his wife and happened to read a book by David Berceau doesn't mean David Berceau advocates beating your wife. And so it was just a sort of a people were not interested in understanding and they wanted to find reasons to uh, just write me off. Others are more percept more open to listening. And so there's been some positive interaction as well. But not what so much the, the disposition. Go ahead. What about the, the disposition of the, the two women? Uh, did they go back from the frying pan to the fire or what happened? Well, we went the next day we went back into town and one of the, the police officer who's actually um, over all of these things, uh, these sorcery related uh, accusations. Um, I met with him. I know him. He's sort of a, an acquaintance of mine. And so we talked with him and uh, one of the ladies ended up going somewhere else for a while. Um, and I think the other eventually returned to her village, but I, I did not hear that anything bad ever happened to them. Adam, you mentioned how um, your view of scripture changed throughout your journey. Um, how has that affected your translation effort and your team there? Um, you talked about conflict there within your team as you changed your perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, the work of Bible translation is a key part of this as well. I didn't really have time to get into it. But as you translate scripture, uh, you know, when you read scripture in English, it's very easy to gloss over things that you've read many times. And you just sort of assume that you know what it means. And you don't really think about it again. And that's how so many people can read the Sermon on the Mount and come to the conclusions that they do uh, and basically ignore a lot of what it says because they've read it so many times and they just gloss over it. But when you're translating and you're trying to translate into a language that's never, that really doesn't have the vocabulary yet, you really have to think about what it means. And you really have to think about how you're going to say it without using religious words. Uh, and so you can't pass by any part of scripture. You're, you're constantly wrestling with what the scripture actually says. And so that, <laughs> that forces you to think through some of these things in, in a lot of depth. And I would say that uh, the impact on our translation work is we've, we've probably gone from a more loose translation to a more, I wouldn't say literal, but closer to the literal side uh, of things as we've gone on. And so really taking God's word seriously and, and uh, wanting to make sure we're not putting our own thoughts and our own theology and our own perspective in scripture, but just letting scripture speak for itself. And you, find, you find your co-translators um, okay with that, with that direction? Yeah, they, they actually prefer, they actually prefer a more, a more literal translation. So they're, they're definitely on board with that. Good. 
For Old Testament, do you use uh, Masoretic text or do you use uh, Septuagint? We haven't done a whole lot of uh, Old Testament yet, uh, but it's been from the Masoretic text. Okay. Um, well, thank you, everyone. It is quarter after yep. seven o'clock here. It is ten after, or quarter after ten there. Uh, right, Adam? Ten quarter after ten, or quarter after? It last? is. Yep. Quarter okay. after ten. All right. It's, it's time for you to hit the hay, and it's time for the rest <laughs> of us to get this Saturday gone. Um, so right. thank you, Adam, so much for for sharing this morning. I really, really do appreciate that. I'm going to ask uh, Truman. Evie, just to lead us in a closing prayer here, and a special blessing on you all there, um, in pop, uh, on you all, Adam, and your wife, Martha, your family there. Uh, Truman, go ahead. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you for your work in, um, in the family there with Adam and Martha and their children and all the um, team members as they're working in Papua New Guinea. Thank you for your uh, faithfulness to reveal yourself and um, to guide us poor dark humans in our darkness here on earth toward the light. Thank you for this amazing story of your um, faithfulness, your work, and I pray you bless Adam and his family as they um, follow you and focus more on followership than on leadership. I just... Mm. Um, bless them in that and and pray for your continuing work in all of our lives here on this call um, bless us through this day help us to um, take that example of of committing to your will before we know what it is and um, being ready for whatever you bring that surprises us today amen 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 Amen. All right. God bless you all. Thank you again, Adam. Yep. And God bless you. Good to be with you all. Good to have you here. Grace and peace. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. <laughs>